0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to cover verses 22 through 32 tonight. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age. Or in the age to come. Now, as you hopefully can see, this is a passage that's caused a lot of confusion over the years for people as to what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It seems very serious. I don't want to do it. Well, stick with us. We're going to let the scripture teach us tonight, and hopefully you'll have a deeper understanding of what it is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So let's start off with what happens here. Here, Jesus heals another individual who was oppressed by a demon, but the reaction of the Pharisees wasn't what you think it would be. Now, first of all, the people, were amazed, and they responded by saying, could this be the son of David? As they see Jesus do this miracle, they they are saying, could this be the son of David? So when they said, could this be the son of David, what were they actually saying? Could this be who? The Messiah, the Christ. Finger in Matthew 12, go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Remember at the beginning of our study, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So again, we laid that all out, that the prophecies were clearly saying that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. He was also going to be the, the, the Christ and a descendant of Abraham. And so when they said, could this be the son of David, they were actually saying, could this be the prophesied Messiah that is to come? But the Pharisees, instead of saying, could this be the son of David or the Messiah, the Pharisees said that Jesus was performing these miracles by the power of Satan. He wasn't. God or from God. He was doing this by Satan's power. Now, this isn't the first time that they've done this. Go back to Matthew chapter 9. Back when we did our study of Matthew 9, we looked at this passage briefly. I told you we wouldn't go into it in too much detail because we're going to cover it in much more detail when we get to chapter 12, and that's what we're going to do tonight. But in Matthew chapter 9, look at verses 32 through 34. It says, As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marvelled, saying, "Never was anything like this seen in Israel." But the Pharisees said, "He casts out demons by the prince of demons." So here in chapter 12, when he cast another demon out of this individual, who was not only mute but also blind at this time, and he could then not only speak but he could also see, the reaction of the people were not just amazement like they were in chapter 9. Now they're saying, "Could this be the Messiah?" And on top of that, the Pharisees Continued to do their same old line. Now he's doing this by the power of Satan. But did they say it out loud? No, they didn't. How do we know this? Look at what it says in verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, and then we're going to get into what he says. I want to take a second to kind of help you understand something, which I think you already know, but we need to be reminded because it will be very, very, very important at the end of our study as we wrap everything up. Jesus knows their thoughts and he knows your thoughts. Go back to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, David, as he's laying out, there's nowhere we can go to get away from God, that he's everywhere. Makes a very interesting statement under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, so God's the one that's telling us this. In Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. By the way, as a little tidbit, when Becky and I had the privilege to be with Pat in the hospital yesterday, I shared with her Psalm 139, verse 16, where it says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, I shared with her. God had already written before she was born, when her beginning and when her end was going to be, and He knows it, and just take comfort in that, and little did we know it would be the very next day within 24 hours almost. But God knows your thoughts. How many of you thought, well, I 'll never say it because you know if you say it, then he'll hear it. no, he knows it. He knows what you're thinking. so Jesus, knowing what they're thinking that the people are all saying, could this be the Messiah? The Pharisees are saying, no, he, he's doing this by the power of Satan. Jesus begins first to answer their thoughts in a practical sense, and then he gets into the deeper truth of the matter, which we'll get to in a little bit. The first thing he deals with is just logically, he deals with them from a logical standpoint. He says, okay, think about what you just said, or think about what you guys are thinking in your hearts. He says, if Satan is casting out demons... Satan's casting out himself, his own kingdom. He said he's divided against himself, and that kind of kingdom won't last long. That's what he says. Look at verses 25 and 26. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And and then we'll get to uh, verse 26. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So what he says to him is this. He says, listen, you guys are accusing me of casting out Satan by Satan's power. you got Satan casting himself, casting himself out. That's a kingdom divided against itself. Any kingdom divided against itself is not going to make it. By the way, as a real quick aside, that's why we need to pray for our country. With the division that's arising more and more and more, and unfortunately politicians are trying to fuel it a little bit, that doesn't look good. That doesn't look good for us. And Oh, if you do a study of Scripture... You'll notice that a lot of times when God would bring judgment on a nation, one of the ways that he did it was he had them in the end fighting against themselves. Even though they, when they gathered together to fight against a certain foe, by the time it was all said and done, they were all turning their swords on each other. You even see that in the battle of Armageddon. If You do a study in the battle of Armageddon. When they're all gathered against Israel to fight against Jesus and Israel, at the end, they're all going to be turning their swords on each other. A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. By the way, We've heard people say that for years, haven't we? came from the Scriptures. Did you know that most of the sayings and things that we have as a part of our everyday life is from the Bible? Has anybody ever heard the saying, a little bird told me? You ever heard that one? That's actually from the Bible. When the Bible actually says, be careful about what you say in your little room, because there could be a bird in the window that hears it and goes off and tells the king. A little bird told me it's from the Scriptures. All the, all, a lot of stuff we talk about, is all in the Scriptures and has been here. So Jesus just turns to him and he says, guys, okay, you're accusing me of casting out Satan by Satan. That's a kingdom that divided against itself. That's, that's not going to work too well. But then he, in verse 27, does something very interesting. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, or the prince of demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, for some of you that don't know this, and I'll show you it from Scripture, the Pharisees had disciples as well. You know, Jesus had disciples, John the Baptist had disciples, the Pharisees had disciples. And that's when he says, your sons, he's talking about the disciples of the Pharisees. He says, you guys have disciples, sons of yours that are going around casting out demons. Whose power are they using? If you're accusing me of using Satan to cast out Satan, let's just ask you. You've got a group of disciples that are out there casting out demons and you approve of them. Whose power are they using? And what he's in essence saying to them is this. They will tell you that it's only by the power of God that you can cast out a demon. So go ask your sons by whose power they cast them out. They'll be your judges as to whether or not what I'm doing is of God or of Satan. Now you say, where do you see in Scripture that the Pharisees had disciples that cast out demons? Go to Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, look at verses 11 through 17. This is after Jesus' death and his resurrection as the church is being built. It says in chapter 19 of Acts verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of his house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So here, as God's doing these miracles, remember, let me stick, I got to chase a rabbit here. This is worth catching though, so uh, stick with me. The, The disciples are going out and they're doing all these miracles. God's doing the miracles, the scripture says, through them. And here Paul, so much so that if he touched a handkerchief and that handkerchief touched somebody else, they were getting healed. By the way, If you've ever read my book on the principles of a God-centered church, you'll see that all through the scripture, God doesn't duplicate his methods. Yet, how many preachers today will say, if you send enough money, I'll take some of my sweat and my hanky and send it to you in the mail? Yeah, I'm not going to name names, but they're out there. At the same time, there were Jewish exorcists who were out there casting out demons. But they all of a sudden started to see this incredible power that was being exercised. And by the way, the reason why God would do the miracles at the beginning was to gain a hearing for the message. If you ever notice in the scriptures, the more that the gospel got spread into an area, the less the miracles were needed, and the less miracles happened. The miracles were to get the attention to gain a, a, a hearing for the message. Once the message got there, you don't need the miracles anymore. The, mir- the miracles, again, were to just gain a hearing. I'm, I believe God still does miracles. I'm not one of these people that's done things God doesn't do miracles anymore. There are people out there that think that those have ceased. I don't believe that the Bible teaches that at all. But at the same time, as the gospel has spread, there's less need of them. Well, let's just take for example. Have you ever noticed that once the disciples went in and started to do miracles, and then they got a chance to preach, they stopped doing miracles and they just kept preaching? They didn't have a healing ministry or a healing tour. Actually, by at some place, Paul actually writes, I left Trophimus sick my Miletus. Well, how come you left him sick? You can just, just say the word and he's healed. No, it doesn't work like that. God does heal, and he, but sometimes he chooses not to and all that. We've done that whole study. So in this instance now, because of the power of God is being demonstrated so clearly, these exorcists who had been going out, these Jewish exorcists, some were descendants or descendants of this priest, high priest, these seven sons of Sceva. They had been going out casting out demons, but now they're seeing there's this great power in Jesus' name so they decide, not knowing Jesus personally, that they're going to cast out demons by this Jesus whom Paul preaches. The demon says to them, I know who Jesus is. And I've heard about Paul. Who are you? In other words, you have no authority because you don't know this guy that you're using his name. By the way, for those of us who have entered in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ and become children of God by him giving us new birth, we can use his name because we know him, and he lives within us. If a demon sees you and I, and you are born again, and the Spirit of God is within you, the demon will never say, who are you? They know who we are because they'll see God. But in this instance, these men did not have a relationship with God. They did not have his authority. And this one man overtook all seven of them to the point that they all ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I've just, being a guy, pictured that scene so many times in my mind and thought, it would be kind of a funny scene to watch. All these guys going, yipe, yipe, yipe and running all over the place. But, but Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, okay, you're accusing me of using Satan's power to cast out Satan, but you've got disciples of yours, sons of yours, that are out there exercising and doing demon removal, and you've got no problem with them doing it. Whose power are they using? Go ask them. They'll be your judges. The Pharisees would, of course, respond that their disciples are casting out demons by the power of God. So Jesus tells them, in essence, you ask your disciples whose power it takes to cast these out. And then Jesus says, you can't overtake the strong person's house without someone stronger coming in and overtaking him and binding him first. Go back and look at verse 27. He says, In verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebel, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying, but if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, listen closely to what he says next then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says, first off, you accusing me of doing this by the power of Satan, not logical. Kingdom divided against itself will never stand. On top of that, your disciples know that this is only done by the power of God. And they'll be your judges. And on top of that, if Satan's as powerful as you know he is, someone stronger than him has to be able to come in and take care of him. You just can't enter his house unless you're more powerful to remove him. So... If I've come in and cast out Satan, then the Spirit of God has come upon you. And listen to what he says next. In essence, I'm going to show it to you scripturally in a little bit. But in essence, he says to them, and you know this to be true. He says, Then the Spirit of God has come upon you, and the kinks are not Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has entered and is in your presence. And in essence, You know it now. Go to John chapter 3. Look at verses 1 and 2. As we've already seen, the Pharisees are real quick to say, oh no, this isn't by God. This is not being done by God. This is being done by Satan. But look at John chapter 3 and look at verses 1 and 2. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Did you catch that? He comes at night and he tips the Pharisees hand. He says, we know you're from God. Now, Nicodemus is curious enough to go searching for truth. The other Pharisees, even though they know it to be true, don't want it to be true. Why do they not want it to be true? power. It's up what? Their status quo. The way they want their religion to be would be totally changed. If God's God, then they're not. If this man is from God and everybody goes to follow him, they'll lose their hearing. They'll lose their crowds. They'll lose all that they have been. What they think church is really all about will be gone. Oh, by the way, how I want to chase that rabbit. I deal most of my time as I travel around trying to get churches woke back up to following the Lord and living by the scriptures and what it means to be led of the Spirit biblically and to actually say, Lord, what do you want to do now? As we've already agreed that he doesn't duplicate his methods. Yet how many in our churches today are hanging on to how it's always been? Part of why they hang on to how it's always been is because they've always been in power. And if they lose that power, they'll think that everything they know as church will be gone. But I'm not going to chase that rabbit. Go to John chapter 9. But I want to. Go to John chapter 9. Maybe we'll chase it later. Go to John chapter 9. Not tonight. Look at verses 24 through 34. This is the story of Jesus healing the man who had been born blind. So the Pharisees for the second time called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner, talking about Jesus. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, though, I was blind and now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've already told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Is that why you want to know this? And they reviled him, saying, "You you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Now, hang on for a second. What had John already told us, uh, John 3 already showed us from Nicodemus? They knew where he had come from. They didn't want to acknowledge it. You're going to see that become more and more evident in some more scriptures we're going to be looking at. They said, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. Sorry, the man answered, verse 30, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know, according to your teaching, Pharisees, that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man weren't from God, he could not He could do nothing. In other words, all the, 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 the man that had been healed of blindness said to him was, hey, what do you mean you don't know where he's from? You're the ones who have been teaching all along that if, They're able to do this stuff. They're from God because God only works through those who know him and love him and do his word. So if he's doing these things, according to your teaching, Pharisees, he has to be from God. Or else everything you've said to us isn't true. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you'll teach us. And they cast him out. Now, Jesus. Well. We'll stop there. We'll come back to that passage in just a little bit. We'll come back to John 9 a little bit. Go to Matthew 22. So they know where he's from, but they won't acknowledge it. Go to Matthew 22. Look at verses 15 through 22. In Matthew 22, starting in verse 15... It says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, talking about Jesus. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Hang on for a second. Stop, stop, stop. The Pharisees now come and they meet with Jesus and they bring some people that were Herodians. In other words, they were interested in what Herod's teaching was and the authority Herod had there in Rome at that time. So they got these people listening in, and the Pharisees who said, he's not from God, although Nicodemus says, we know you're from God. But then publicly they're saying, we don't know where this guy's coming from. They're not willing to acknowledge he's from God, even though they know. Now come and say to him, we know you're from God. Isn't that interesting? He says, we we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. By the way, having been a pastor for many, many years, I've learned never to take people's flattery seriously. You'd be amazed how many people in the church will tell you what you want to hear. But behind the doors, that's not what they really think. You'd be amazed. Many preacher has been warned, beware of the first people to meet you when you get off the train at the new church. They usually have an agenda and they'll be very flattering. But if all of a sudden you're not willing to go down their road, you've been there, Jackie, have you not? Watch out how they treat you when they find out you're not going to be swayed, even though they say you're not swayed. As a little tidbit, when I came here as pastor back in 2000, sorry, yeah, 2000, one of the men on the search committee asked me, of the que- one of the questions he asked me was, are you able to make a tough decision? We've had pastors in the past who weren't able to make a tough decision. We need someone that's a strong enough leader to make a tough decision. I said, I believe I am. Within a few months, I had to make a tough decision dealing with his family. (laughs) He didn't like the fact that I was able to make a tough decision. (laughs) We're not going to chase that rabbit either. (laughs) (laughs) So in this situation, you know the story. They say, are we to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Their reason was to trip him up, because they want him to say, don't pay taxes. Or they're going to say... Pay your taxes. That's gonna get everybody mad at him one way or another. Whichever side of the political aisle you're on. But again, why do they say that they believe he's from God and teaches the way of God when they say they don't believe he's from God, but deep down they know he's from God? Have you noticed everything they say it lines up with where they that situation and how it really works for them that's best? Go to John chapter 5. Jesus knows their hearts. In John chapter 5, look at verses 30. 46. And by the way, the further we go into this, I pray you'll stop looking at the Pharisees and allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. Because we have the same sin nature as the Pharisees. We're no different. We all love to rationalize and manipulate our words to make ourselves look good. Go to John chapter 5, verses 30 through 46. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, meaning John the Baptist, and he's borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive, from, receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Now, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, or his permission and authority, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, his own permission, his own authority, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. In other words, the word of God. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here Jesus is saying to him, he says, look. My testimony, if I just bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. In the law, it said there had to be at least two witnesses for something to be believed. And he said, you've even heard from John, and he's given testimony about who me and who I am. But I'm not even going to take his testimony, because it's coming from a man. But my Father is also the one who witnesses, and the Spirit is the one who witnesses, and the miracles that he's doing through me should be enough for you. Not only that... The Word of God has been there all along pointing to me. And you're looking at the Scriptures because you think you can get eternal life by reading the Scriptures and doing what you think they say, and you'll be okay by just doing what you think it says. No, they're pointing to me. But you won't come to me that you have, would have life. In other words, you've seen it, you've seen it, you've seen it, you've seen it. Go to Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 22. In Peter's sermon, on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, In verse 22, he makes a very interesting statement. He says in verse 22 of Acts 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. What's the rest of it? As you yourselves know. Go to Acts chapter 10. Look at verses 34 through 38. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Now as for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He's Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So in these messages by Peter in Acts 2 and Acts 10, he's telling the Jews, he's telling the Gentiles the same thing. When Jesus was on the earth, he did what he did by the power of God, by the authority of God, and you know it. It's like I've told you before. There's a world of people here that say that they're atheists. They don't believe God exists. Guess what? They know he exists. They know he exists. He's revealed himself. They know it. Now, whether they're willing to acknowledge it or not is the issue, and that's where we're going. The Bible says very clearly that every man is without excuse. Whether God's revealed himself through creation or writing his law in their hearts, or whether or not he's revealed himself in other ways to them, everyone hears. Everyone knows don't waste any more time in your Sunday school classes dealing with what about those who have never heard? The Bible says there's no such person. Colossians 1:23 says this gospel has been preached in all creation. Romans chapter 2 verse 16 says that God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Romans chapter 10 verse 18, Paul says, "Did they not hear? Of course they did. His word has gone into all the earth." Does that mean we aren't keep sending missionaries? No, there are people being born every day. We need to keep getting the word out as God sends us to where he wants us to go. But stop sitting around thinking that God is impotent. And if we don't tell them, they may never hear. Stop thinking it's about us to get it out there. Folks, God is able to communicate his truth. And everyone in the world, whether they are willing to acknowledge it or not, they know he exists and they know they need a savior. Everyone knows that they're a sinner. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. So Jesus then goes on and he says, verse 31 Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, he'll be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age. in the age to come as Jesus has laid this out with them he says you yourselves know you know that I'm not casting out Satan by Satan because that's foolishness a kingdom wouldn't stand against itself it wouldn't stand if that were the case your own disciples I'm sorry yes it is and we're going to get to that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable and I'm going to deal with that real quickly as to why that is too but he also says look your own disciples, Pharisees, are casting out demons and they know that this is only done by the power of God. Go ask them whose power authority they're using. They'll be your judges. And then on top of that, think about it for a second. You've got to be stronger than the one you're getting rid of. So if I'm casting out demons, it's by someone greater than Satan. And it's by the Spirit of God. And you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he could say these words too. I know your hearts. I know you know but you're not willing to acknowledge it. And then he makes this statement. He says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. There's only one that won't be forgiven. The unpardonable sin, as we've heard it called. Now, in order for me to lay out to you what that is, got to do with some deep theology for you real quick. Go to Colossians chapter 1 and look at verse 19. Now, I'm not going to tell you what these passages say. I'm going to read them to you. And I'm going to ask you to tell me what they say. Because I think as teachers and preachers, sometimes it would do us well not to always tell everybody right away what it says. Because all you do is become parrots of what we said. I want to see if the Spirit of God is opening your eyes to truth. Well, I didn't come here to say anything. I just came back to listen. Well, tough. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 19. For in him, in Christ... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, before we try to answer this, I'm going to give you one more passage. We're going to put the two together. Let me read it to you again. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 18 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling who? The world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what are these two passages saying when they say, that God reconciled all things through the blood of Christ on the cross, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself at that moment, not counting men's trespasses against them. What is this passage, What are these passages saying to us? Okay, the work is done. He died for what? He died for everyone. All right, go, keep going with it, Charlie. You're right on track. Everyone's forgiven. You got it. Did you hear what Charlie just said? Everyone's forgiven already, but you have to receive the gift. The message of the gospel is not God's mad at you, but if you ask him to forgive you, he'll change his mind towards you. The message of the gospel is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and paid for the sins of the entire world all at one time through his death on the cross. At that time, he reconciled all things to himself through his blood. Colossians 1:19. But the message of the gospel is... We now are his ambassador saying, God's paid for all of your sins. Receive that gift. He loves you. He, if you go to heaven, it's because you received the gift that he provided for you. If you go to hell, it's because you rejected the only way you can be forgiven. And it was already paid for. Isn't that an easy message to preach? Neighbor, he's already paid for your sins. He's not a mad God. You've been painted a horrible picture of who God is. And unfortunately, many of us Christians who are so judgmental and don't understand the love of God toward us, we've been actually thinking we're better than you and looking down on you. He loved you just as much as he loved us. Actually, the Bible says he loved us while we were his enemies. While we were still sinners, he died for us. So Jesus says every sin has already been paid for or will be paid for it. When he says this, he's about to go to the cross. But there's only one sin. There's only one sin that is not covered by Jesus' death on the cross. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Listen closely. Because when the Spirit of God draws you to salvation and opens your eyes and you know the truth and you reject it, that's the only sin that wasn't already covered at the cross. There's one sin that will separate you from heaven. By the way, when you hear people say, I don't believe in a God that would send people to hell, he's not. He's doing everything in his power to keep you from hell. He's even paid your debt. If you go, you chose to go. Your sin has already been paid for, but there's already one sin that's already not covered. One sin that's not already covered, sorry, it's the sin of knowing the truth about your need of Jesus and rejecting him. This is the unpardonable sin. Why? Why is this the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Listen closely because it's the Holy Spirit who is the one who opens our eyes to the truth. Go to John chapter 15 and look at verse 26. John chapter 15, verse 26. How many times over the years as a pastor, have I dealt with people to say, oh God could never forgive me, I've done this, I've done that, they have no idea that their sin was already paid for, it's already forgiven. John 15, verse 26, look at what Jesus says. But when the Helper the, comes is the help, Holy Spirit, whom the Father sent to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who also proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about who? About me, Jesus said. Go to John chapter 16, look at verses 7 through 11. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you it's your, to, to the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning, by the way, did you catch that? What's the sin? Not believing in Jesus. The sin is not murder, adultery, rape. Those are all sins. But what's the sin that God's wanting to convict us of? Not that we're murderers and adulterers and rapists. What's he trying to convict us of? That we don't believe in him. You see, the other sins are already been paid for. Our message is receive the gift. How silly would it be if you went out of your way to do an amazing Christmas for your kids and then on Christmas morning you say, here you go, receive them, open up the presents, and they say, now we're good. Kind of stupid, isn't it? When you go... Well, some of you might say, good, I'll take it back and get my money back. No, but that's not how God's heart is. God's like, I've already paid for it. It's already done. Receive it. And he grieves when we don't respond. Concerning sin, because people don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, he says he's going to convict the world of their sin, which is not believing in me. He's going to convict the world about what righteousness looks like because I'm going to go back to the Father and the Spirit himself is going to be showing you what righteousness looks like and how we live. And concerning judgment, because the rule of this world is judged, the Holy Spirit is going to show us that the one being judged is the one who has caused this whole problem, Satan himself. It's been taken care of at the cross. We don't have to worry about judgment anymore. We don't have to fear God's judgment anymore. It's been taken care of at the cross. Go to John chapter 6. Look at verses 44 and 45. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Hang on for a second. Who does the Father use to draw people? We've just read it. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, some people say, well, God only sends the Spirit to draw the people that are going to be saved, there are that their people aren't going to be saved, and God doesn't draw them. That's not what the Bible teaches. Keep reading. Look at the next verse. As it is written in the prophets... And they will, what? All be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Do you see the difference? Everybody hears. Everybody in some way or another has had or will have their eyes open to this truth of their need of Jesus. Whoever listens. Whoever not only hears but responds appropriately by hearing and listening and doing and obeying. They'll come to him. By the way. That takes the pressure off of us when it comes to sharing the gospel. If you share it and they don't respond to what you, in the way you want them to by believing, is it because you didn't do a good enough job? No, it has nothing to do with you. It's the spirit of God who opens eyes. And if they do open their eyes, if God does open their eyes and they respond and come to faith, is it because you're better at it than the people around you? Is it because you can get a plaque at your church at how many more baptisms you have than the other church down the road? Which, by the way, we have. In our churches, we give awards out to the churches that have baptized more than others. Like we had anything to do with it. It's the work of God. By acknowledging that we're in spiritual darkness, remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. Then we'll come into the light for help. Remember I told you we'd come back to John chapter 9. Go to John chapter 9 and let's pick up where we left off. Remember, Jesus said healed this man of blindness. The Pharisees are saying, how did you do it? And he says, I already told you, you want to hear it again. You want to be his disciples. They made fun of him. And in verse, in John chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? This man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. The man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. By the way. What was he acknowledging by worshiping him? That he was, that he was God. You only to worship God. The Bible's real clear, and this man had been taught by the Pharisees. The Bible's really clear, there's only one person you worship. And by worshiping Jesus, he was acknowledging that he was God. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Now some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. That is interesting. Jesus said, I came into the world so that the people that are blind can see. And know. Oh, by the way, that's all of us. We're all born spiritually blind. There's no one who understands truth. There's no one who seeks God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, we're all guilty. No one's righteous, not even one. Romans 3:11, no one even seeks God. Remember? No one can come to Jesus unless the Father does what first? He draws us by his Spirit. Does He draw everyone? Yes. Now, do we all get the same amount of drawing? No. Jesus said that if the miracles done in Capernaum were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. We've already dealt with it. God judges us according to how much he's revealed to us, but everyone has some measure of revelation and light that everyone hears. Everyone, there's no one without excuse. Everyone, well, go to John, put a finger here in John 9. Go back to John chapter 3. Look at our famous passage that we love to quote, but we don't keep reading. In John chapter 3, look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that who? The world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? It says right there, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you see it? And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. They've seen. They know. People love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, God's come into the world. The light has come to the whole world. Everyone knows. If they don't respond it's because they don't want to respond, because they don't want to acknowledge their sin, they don't want to humble themselves, they don't want God to be God and them not be God, and they're judged already because they haven't believed in Jesus. They're not judged because they're murderers and rapists. They're judged because they haven't believed in Jesus. That's what it's all about. So Jesus said, remember our Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who realize they're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who say, I'm blind. I need (laughs) need help. God says, I'm going to open your eyes so that you can see. But if you think you're okay, you're still in your guilt. Because I've shown you, and you're still trying to take care of it yourself. You say you can see? Good luck with that, God says. That's why Jesus, and we don't have time to turn there, in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Those who are sick, Are the ones who need a doctor, not the ones who are healthy. Now, is the whole world sick? Yes. (laughs) But if they don't acknowledge it, they won't ever go see the doctor. I know many of you probably in the room have been dealing with some kind of a pain for a while, where you you thought to yourself, well, if I don't go to the doctor, it's not going to be there. I've known many a person that said that. I know it's been hurting for a while, but if I go to the doctor, he'll say something's there. As long as I don't go to the doctor, he'll never say something's there, so it's not there. Well, enjoy your cancer. Enjoy your cancer. Do you see how foolish it is to know something's wrong and not deal with it? In the same way, God is revealing himself to the whole world of their spiritual condition. And if you keep saying, I'm okay, now I'm okay. There comes a point, folks, where you reject the spirit opening your eyes to the truth. And you die in that condition. It's The only sin not already covered by Jesus' death on the cross. And you'll go to hell, not because you're a rapist and a murderer and all this other stuff. You go to hell, why? Because you didn't believe in Jesus. That's what sends you to hell. Look closely what Jesus says in verse 32. In chapter 12 of Matthew, look at verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man... Will be forgiven, But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. There may be people in this room, there may be people listening online right now, who have rejected Jesus. And you're sitting there going, is it too late for me? Listen closely. I'm going to show you a story about an individual who rejected Jesus a lot but he did it out of ignorance. Go to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I love that, Sheila. Sheila's over here saying, if the fact that they're still asking the question means it's not, they're not beyond salvation, it's not too late, you're right. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. If you know Paul's story, he was one of those Pharisees, wasn't he? He was working his way up the ladder. Had he heard of Jesus and known about Jesus? Of course he had, and of course he knew about Jesus, because he was going out to have him put Christians put to death. Listen to what Paul says, though, in chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. Did you catch that? Persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal and invisible, only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Had Jesus blasphemed Jesus, sorry, had Paul blasphemed Jesus? Had he persecuted and rejected Jesus? But he did it out of ignorance. But there came a day when God opened his eyes. If you want to read what that is, we don't have time. Go look at Acts chapter 9, you'll see it. Paul's on the way to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, going to go have some more Christians put to death and put in prison. As he's on his way, Jesus himself shows up, and the blinding light of his glory blinds Paul to the point that Jesus then says to him, Paul, Paul, at that time he calls him Saul, that was his old name. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? At this point, Paul doesn't know who he is, and he's just been struck blind, but he acknowledges that this guy's a little stronger than he is. You know, (laughs) Paul thought he's pretty strong, but somebody has just revealed to him that he's not as strong as whoever this guy is. And he says, Lord, who are you? He doesn't know that it's Jesus. He doesn't know. He just knows you're more powerful than me. Lord, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. The spirit of God opens Paul's eyes to who he really is. From that point forward, Paul becomes a believer. Now, with that point, Paul said, like the other Pharisees, I know who you are, but I'd rather keep my position. He's in trouble. Go ahead. I love it. When God's bright light from heaven knocks you off your high horse of self-righteousness, Warren says, it'll get your attention, that's for sure. And I believe in many ways God does that with each of us. Our stories are all different, and we could spend the rest of eternity In here tonight, those of us who are believers sharing how he, at a final point, opened our eyes. How he was using many different ways to get our attention, many different ways to draw us. And if many of you are honest, you'll also acknowledge he didn't just give you one opportunity. He's patient and merciful, not wanting anyone to perish. He chased you. He pursued you. But if you chose to go to your deathbed without responding to that, That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Like you brought out, Sheila, I've had people over the years as a pastor call the church and say, Pastor, I think I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I'm in trouble. And I'm like, if you had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't care. Because the fact that you're still concerned about your spiritual condition means God's still working on you. Someone that God's done, they don't know or care. Folks, there's opportunity. You could have acted in ignorance. But when he opens your eyes, you better respond. Now, as we close, remember at the beginning I told you this all started because Jesus knew something. What did he know? He knew their hearts. Go with me to John chapter 2. Look at verses 23 through 25. And I know what time it is. We started a few minutes late because of announcements. So I think I got five minutes left. We're gonna make it. In John chapter two, verses twenty-three through twenty-five. Now, when he, this is Jesus, was in Jerusalem, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Isn't that interesting. These people saw the miracles that he was doing, and they believed in his name, and Jesus said, No, they didn't. You know, the Bible does teach in the parable of the soils that some seed falls on the rocky soil and the thorny soil and springs up, and it fools us. How many of you have even said this about people in the church? He's a good guy! God knows your heart, folks, and he knows whether or not you truly have responded to the revelation. You can say, I believe in Jesus, but the book of James says, The demons also believe and they tremble. But here's the good news. If he knows you're not where you're supposed to be, what do you think he's going to keep doing? Showing you where you really are. And he's wanting you to surrender and say, yes, Lord. And give him your life. Oh, and when you do, he seals you with the Holy Spirit. Here it says he wouldn't entrust himself to them, but the Bible says for those of us who do believe, he gives us his Holy Spirit, and he seals us with his Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Romans 8 verse 16 says that his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're his children. And in that whole passage says, well, let me read it to you real quick in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 16. Romans 8, verses 9 through 16. I'm going to go fast. Some of you might be able to keep up. Some might not. Some of you say haven't been able to keep up all night. Romans 8, verses 9 through 16. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, no matter what you say. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death, which we have if Christ is in you, the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do You see it? If you've been born again, if you have responded in faith, God knows your heart and he knows it's real and he seals you with his spirit. You're never to worry about losing your salvation. His spirit will testify with your spirit that you're his child. If you don't have that confirmation tonight, Get it settled in whatever way God's telling you to get it settled. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says this, Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Now we're going to close with two very hard passages of Scripture. But with what we've just said, hopefully they make a ton more sense now. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. And then Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 9, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its in its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to, to salvation. Look at what he says. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have had the Spirit of God open their eyes, they've tasted They know the truth to ever be brought back to repentance. If God's shown you and you come to that point of saying, I know, but I reject it. You're in trouble. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Don't die in that condition. And then he uses this illustration. He said rain falls on the land and some places produces a crop and other places produces thorns. And in the same way. As the Spirit of God reveals himself, Jesus, to everyone in the whole world, in time, you'll be able to tell who those are that really believe and who those are that really don't. Is it our job to figure out who's saved and who's not? But if you are saved, you will not lose that salvation. But it's possible to have tasted and have God open your eyes, the Spirit of God open your eyes, and you'll miss out. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace. Again, people have tried to use these two passages to say you can lose your salvation, but now in the context of everything we've looked at tonight, you'll see what the Hebrew writer is saying is if God's opened your eyes to the truth and you know that Jesus is the only way, what what is this deliberately going on sinning? Say it again rejecting the spirit's call to salvation. What's the sin that the spirit's gonna convict the world of? Not believing in Jesus. If you deliberately go on sinning by not believing in Jesus, guess what's coming? A judgment. If people died on the testimony of one or two people, according to whether or not they broke the law of Moses, how much worse do you think will be the judgment for those whom the Spirit of God has opened their eyes to the fact that Jesus has already paid for your sins, that the blood of the covenant was already shed on your behalf? If you reject that You've trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified. In other words, he'd already forgiven you and you rejected it. Folks, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to die without believing in Jesus. That's it. I pray that as we close tonight, you can walk out of here feeling that confirmation of the Spirit that you're his child. If you can't, I don't know how much longer we have on this earth. And I'm not going to try to scare you into heaven. It's the spirit of God's work to get you where you need to be. I just say to you in love, I'm his ambassador. Be reconciled to God. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.